Chapter 24 is environmental emergencies. So an introduction, environmental emergencies, the, it's a disruption in the body's physiology in response to the elements in the patient's natural surroundings. These elements include things like the climate, altitude, lightning, and contact with insects or animals. And environmental emergencies can happen at any time and any place. It's been extremely hot here lately. It's constantly been in the 90s or even higher than that in the 100s. Middle of summer, we can still run on a hypothermic patient, even though it's middle of July and it's hot as hell outside. So again, these conditions can happen anywhere. A lot of it is going to be based on climate. Now we're a lot less likely to run on a hypothermic patient today but it still is possible. So regulation of body temperature. So body mechanisms normally keep the temperature at 98.6 degrees Celsius, with, or degrees Fahrenheit, which is 37 degrees Celsius. So again, that homeostasis in the body, your body's always trying to maintain normal. Your body is constantly going to try to maintain a normal temperature. Thermoreceptors send information to the hypothalamus in the brain. Hypothalamus then uh, uh, makes moves to try to regulate that temperature. Send signals for adjustments to maintain body temperature. Heat is exchanged with the environment via thermal gradient in which warmer temperatures move to, uh, towards colder temperatures. And the body responds by increasing or decreasing amount of heat produced or lost from the body. Again, just saying your body's trying to maintain its normal temperature. So the body has two primary ways or systems to regulate your body temperature. The first one, oftentimes most effective, is behavioral regulation. Patient makes a conscious effort to change the comfort level by taking some actions. You're outside in the cold environment. You, your temperature starts dropping a little bit. Your brain's going to realize, hey, you need to go back inside. So it's going to tell you, go back inside. It's going to make it uncomfortable for you in a cold environment. Again, that's part of that is your body is telling you, hey, I'm uncomfortable. I need to change my habits, my behavior to get comfortable. And then you also have the physiologic regulation. The body responds uh, to thermoreceptors with the physiologic action to change temperature. And we'll talk about some of those uh, uh, physiologic regulation. So cellular damage occurs when there are significant changes in body temperature, whether it be too high or too low, it can damage your cells. How your body produces heat is through metabolism. Remember, metabolism, one of the byproducts of metabolism is heat. The body increases the metabolic rate when too much heat is lost from the body. Again, your body starts getting a little cold, your, or your body feels like you're losing too much heat, your metabolism initially is going to increase to try to generate and produce more heat. And your body can hold on to its heat or conserve heat through vasoconstriction. Your blood vessels constrict. It draws your blood vessels deeper into the body, gets them away from the skin. 
uh, which again is going to protect them more and hold on to that heat uh, better. Heat is lost through vasodilation. Blood vessels dilate, uh, gets closer to the skin, that's closer to that outside environment, it can get rid of some of its heat. Does that, it increases blood flow to the skin, increase in sweating, and increase in respirations. All can help get rid of heat. When heat loss exceeds heat gain, you're losing heat faster than you can produce it or maintain it, hypothermia results. And again, hypothermia is a low core temperature. The opposite, when heat gained exceeds heat loss, the patient's body is getting hotter and there's nothing it can do to get rid of the heat. It keeps getting hotter and hotter. Then hyperthermia results, elevated core temperature. So when heat loss exceeds heat gained, again, that's going to be hypothermia. Hypothermia may develop, body temperature drops below 95 degrees Fahrenheit. If we run on a patient that is starting to get hypothermic or we're worried about it, we need to take actions to reduce patient's heat loss. Easiest thing that we can do, get them out of a cold environment, cover them with a blanket, have the heater on in the back of the truck. And wind increases heat loss by convection. Wind chill increases the risk of hypothermia. Again, everybody knows what the wind chill is. It's 30 degrees outside, but with the wind blowing 20 miles an hour, it feels like it's negative two. It, it will act on the body like it's negative two outside. That wind chill is gonna cause them to lose heat quicker. So how your body loses heat, there's the mechanisms of heat loss. We have radiation. It's transfer of heat from the surface of one object to the surface of another without physical contact. And this is going to be the most significant means of heat loss. And how this plays on most patients, it's just going to be the ambient, ambient temperature. The colder it is outside, your body is going to lose heat through that outside environment through radiation. Convection, air molecules that are immediate contact with the skin to be warmed. This is affected by wind chill. Conduction, loss through direct contact. If the patient is uh, laying on a cold floor, they're going to start losing some of their temperature through cold floor. If they fall in a frozen lake, they're going to start losing their, their water temperature through that frozen lake. The wind chill index talks about we have wind speeds right here, and then we have ambient temperature right there, and then how it kind of correlates. So a uh, hang on one second. This is yeah temperature. So if it's twenty degrees outside with a wind speed of forty, it's going to feel like it's negative one out there or negative twenty one. Sorry. So little danger if properly clothed. You can see the, the color coded. Uh, and there's great danger of freezing of freezing exposed flesh. Again, this is mainly focused on things like frostbite, not so much about uh, hypothermia. We have evaporation process where liquid changes to a vapor. Again, things like through sweating. Even your breathing can cause you to lose heat. 
a person breathes out warm air. And then when they inhale again, they're breathing in colder air. That's going to cause them to drop their temperature. Again, just an illustration showing the different ways patients can lose heat. So we have convection. Body heat is lost to surrounding air, which becomes warmer, rises, replaces it with cooler air. Radiation, body heat is lost to the atmosphere or nearby objects without physically touching them. Respiration, they breathe out hot air, warm air, breathe in colder air. Evaporation, the skin's wet through either uh, sweating or uh, rain, whatever the case may be. And conduction, he's on the cold ground, he's going to lose heat that way as well. So that was hypothermia, low core temperature. When heat gained exceeds heat lost, now the patient is hyperthermic, elevated core temperature, <clears throat> or a high body temperature, and occurs when a body cannot cool itself effectively. Where we tend to see hyperthermic emergencies, though, is, is generally going to be in very hot temperatures. Uh, air temperature is high. Humidity plays a role in it as well. The higher the humidity, the worse it is, and there is little or no breeze to help cool the patient down. So moving on to cold-related emergencies, exposure to cold. Exposure to cold can result in two kinds of emergencies. We can have generalized hypothermia. Again, that is a drop in the core temperature of the patient. And it can also cause damage to localized body tissues like frostbite. So generalized hypothermia, drop in core temperature. Thermoregulation ability is lost when the body temperature reaches 95. So things like shivering, body shivers to try to generate and produce more heat. Your body loses its ability to shiver once your core temperature starts to fall below 95 degrees Fahrenheit. Again, so that thermoregulation is kind of lost. Coma occurs when your core temp reaches 79 degrees Fahrenheit with death occurring within two hours of onset. And profound hypothermia is very dangerous with the mortality rate as high as 87%. Have a sudden onset as when somebody falls through ice that instantly is going to pretty much put them into hypothermia, or it can have a more gradual onset as just being outside in the elements for long periods of time, exposure to wind, cold air, or cool water. So signs and symptoms of a sinking core temperature. So between 95 to 98 degrees Fahrenheit, cold, pale skin, patients alert, they're just very mild hypothermia, so uh, alert and shivering, poor muscle coordination, rapid breathing, rapid heart rate. It starts falling below 95 degrees down to 90 degrees. Their skin gets cold, waxy. They get a puffy face, maybe pink. Start having some ultramental status, uh, confusion, muscle rigidity. And again, right here, no shivering. Your body loses the ability to shiver when it just when it falls below that 95 degrees Fahrenheit. Now everything's gonna start kind of slowing down. The heart rate's no longer gonna be rapid. It's going to start to slow down. 86 to 90, dilated pupils, diminished reflexes, stupor, coma, rigid muscles, slow breathing rate, hypotension, slow heart rate. 
again, your body's initial response is going to speed up metabolism. So we're going to see things like tachycardia. Once it falls below 95, your body kind of is losing that ability to maintain that thermal regulation. So it's going to start slowing down. Everything's going to start slowing down. 82 to 86, fixed dilated pupils, coma, flaccid muscles, slow respiration, slow, or now we can possibly have a rapid heart rate. And at this time, patient is possible to go into cardiac arrest. 68 to 82, uh, cyanotic, fixed dilated pupils, unresponsive, barely detectable vital signs, irregular pulse, and again, cardiac arrest is very likely. So predisposing factors that's going to make a patient more prone to becoming hypothermic. Again, the biggest factor is going to be the ambient temperature. How cold is the environment that the patient is in? Wind chill is going to play a role in that and overall moisture as well. Again, if, they're, if it's raining or it's extremely foggy and they're damp, they're going to lose uh, temp quicker. Extremes of age, very young kiddos cannot maintain body temperature very well. The same is true for older patients. They have a harder time maintaining body temperature. So have you ever gone into your grandparents' house or older people's house? Normally, it feels like it's 110 degrees in there. They always, their houses are generally hot because they can't maintain their temperature. Medical conditions such as diabetes, injuries, thyroid gland disorders, hypothyroidism, Remember, your thyroid helps maintain metabolism, alcohol use, drug use, poisons. What type of clothing were they wearing in that, in that environment? The duration they were in that environment and the activity level they had in the environment as well. Again, hypothermia can occur in cold, or merely cool environments. And it does not have to be below freezing for a patient to develop hypothermia. It just has to be chilly. So again, the patient there on the left, snowboarding out in the snow, obviously he's gonna be a risk factor for hypothermic. It's obviously a cold environment. Other homeboy over here on the right is in a urban environment, appears to be drunk, uh, may doesn't appear to be too cold outside, but it may be cool. He's laying on cold concrete, and he may be wet from spilling beer or urinating on himself. Again, that patient is going to be at risk to it as well. Diabetics, when what happens to their skin when they get hypoglycemic? What's their skin do? They get cool and clammy, diaphoretic. I ran on a patient that was middle of July, it's a diabetic patient, just got out of the shower. So she was, her hair was, was still wet. She was also sweating and diaphoretic real bad. She, her sugar dropped while she was in the shower and she passed out naked on a cold tile bathroom floor. And it was 70 degrees inside the house. She was extremely hypothermic by the time we got there. So again, it does not have to be in the middle of winter before we run or see hypothermic patients. So stages of hypothermia. The initial reaction to cold exposure are increase in the, the basal me metabolic rate, muscular shivering, and polo erection, which is the fancy medical term for patients going to have goosebumps. 
again, it's all in an effort to try to generate more heat. The biggest reason or the biggest thing to do to generate more heat is going to be the increase in metabolism. In hypothermia, these mechanisms are not enough to maintain body temperature. So again, the increase in metabolism, the shivering is not conserving as much heat as it needs to. Now the patient's starting to get hypothermic. So mild hypothermia is 95 to 91.4, moderate is 89.6 to 85.2, severe is 82.4 to 71.6, and profound is 68 to 48.2. I will say this, we have thermometers on our trucks, right, to check temperature. This is talking about core temperature. How do we check core temperature in the back of an ambulance? Is a tympanic in the ear core temperature or the ones that we were running across their foreheads a core temp? No. The way we do it in an ambulance is a rectal temp. Guess who gets to do rectal temperatures if it's a basic and a paramedic? Damn sure ain't going to be the paramedic, I promise you that. Immersion hypothermia. So heat loss occurs 25 to 30, 10, 30 times faster in water than it does in air. So that's meaning patient falls in cold water, they're going to get hypothermic very, very quickly. Body temp can drop to water temperature as little as 10 minutes. So the longer they're in that uh, water, the faster or the, the quick, the more temperature they're going to lose. Again, it's trying to get to normal. So if the water is 32 degrees out or 38 degrees freezing, somebody, a body is in that, that body is going to keep lowering temperature until it reaches roughly the same temperature as that water. And again, that can happen as, as soon as 10 minutes. Death can occur in minutes and water temperature as high as 50 degrees Fahrenheit. So there are two phases of immersion hypothermia. We have the cold shock response, and then we have cold incapacitation. So the cold shock response, this lasts just for a few minutes and the respiratory pattern changes with a gas response. And I'm sure everybody in here has jumped into a swimming pool or jumped into water that was pretty cold or even stepping into a cold shower. Your body's natural reaction to that sudden change in cold water or feeling that cold water is to kind of gas. So the patient gets in that cold water, has that gas response, body kind of freaks out, they lose the ability to hold their breath, breathing becomes erratic, Tachypnic, they're breathing fast, hyperventilating. You breathe, they're hyperventilating too much, can cause you to pass out. And that in water may cause you to drown. So if the patient survives the cold shock response, doesn't drown from that quickly, now they can start going into that cold incapacitation. He has about 10 minutes before he is unable to perform any useful activity. So the speed of rescue is going to be important. Loss of fine motor function first, followed by the loss of gross motor function. The patient's going to lose the abilities to grasp objects or to move and wiggle their fingers and toes first. The longer it goes, now they're losing gross motor function where they can't even move their shoulders or their larger joints. 
severe vaso, peripheral vasoconstriction is going to occur as your body is trying to preserve any heat that it can. Not only that, while the patient's in the water, movement in the water is going to actually accelerate hypothermia. So they are in the water struggling, flailing around. What they're doing is they're moving that water that's close to their bodies that has been warmed up by their bodies a little bit. They're going to be moving that out of the way, and then they're going to be drawing fresh cold water into their bodies, causing their temperature to draw, drop faster. Sun death within 24 hours following rescue has been reported in approximately 20% of immersion patients. So even if we rescue them and they appear to be okay after that rescue, they, they have, I mean, they've been indications or uh, instances that the patient just goes into cardiac arrest within up to 24 hours after that cold water immersion. So just like with drowning, cold water immersion, they need to go to the hospital to be evaluated regardless of how a uh, how well they look, asymptomatic they are. And we need to be careful when we are handling them as well. Cold water immersion patients should be kept in a supine position, should not be asked to do any physical activity that is not necessary. They're prone to plotting. They're prone to, again, just randomly going into cardiac arrest with a lot of movement or physical activity. So again, keep them supine, don't have them walk around, be gentle as we're lifting and moving them as well. Again, they're prone to going into cardiac dysrhythmias, clots, cardiac arrest. So effects of water temperature on survival in cold water, again, the darker blue right here is gonna be lethal. So if the water temperature is, is as cool as 50 degrees Fahrenheit, if they've been in there for about three hours, that is considered 100% lethal exposure. Again, water as warm as roughly 65 degrees can potentially be dangerous if the patient's in there long enough. We also have what's known as urban hypothermia. This can be caused by illness, medications, age predisposes patients to hypothermia. We're not talking about somebody that's out inside that cold environment for long periods of time out in the wilderness. We're talking about hypothermia that we're seeing in cities. External hypothermia occurs because of inadequate access to shelter. Our homeless population, they don't have access to shelter. They stay outside during the winter. That's They get hypothermia, that would be external hypothermia. Internal hypothermia, occurs because of inadequate heating of the home. Patient has shelter, but they can't afford their electricity bills or their gas bills, so they don't have heat on inside their residence. And our elderly and our homeless population are gonna be at the greatest risk for urban hypothermia. Myxedema coma, is a complication of hypothyroidism, ineffective thyroid, remember thyroid that helps maintain metabolism, that occurs very late in its progression. Again, thyroid hormone maintains normal metabolic rate. And this my, myxedema coma can occur rapidly in persons with hypothyroidism that is exposed to cold temperatures. So these patients, again, they have hypothyroidism, meaning 
their thyroid doesn't work as effectively, their metabolic rates are typically slower. And that's one of the body's way to try to compensate for cold exposure is increased metabolism. Hypothyroidism, they can increase metabolism. So they move pretty quickly to hypothermia. And with my, my exedema coma, core temperature can be as low as 75 degrees Fahrenheit. So again, that was generalized hypothermia. When we talk about generalized hypothermia or just hypothermia, we're talking about a drop in the patient's core temperature. Again, the other type of cold-related emergencies that we may deal with is localized soft tissue injuries. Those are then broken down into non-freezing injuries and freezing injuries. So non-freezing cold injuries. This occurs because of exposure to the feet, to a cold, but non-freezing environment. And re does result in damage to peripheral tissues. Two most common types are immersion foot and trench foot. So trench foot is exposure of the feet to a constant cold, but non-freezing temperature. Trench foot is very common in military. One thing that makes it uh, is kind of a predisposing factor to it is the restriction of blood flow to that area to the foot because their boots are laced up and they lace them up very tight that it slightly reduces blood flow. And can occur in temperatures of 65 degrees Fahrenheit if the foot is constantly cool and damp. Immersion foot results from prolonged immersion of the feet in cool or cold water. Can occur if the feet are kept in a cold or cold wet sock for a long period of time as well. And mostly seen in the homeless, elderly, hikers, hunters, and sports enthusiasts. So signs and symptoms of these non-freezing cold injuries. You can have urethemia, which is reddening of the skin, white, mottled, or cyanotic skin. It can cause maceration, which is the skin is actually starting to break down. Blisters, open sores, swelling. You can have pulselessness to that area. Have numbness or no feeling to the foot. Uh, which is anesthesia, clumsiness, you can't feel their feet, feet's damaged. Again, they may have a hard time walking. And if we palpate the area, it's going to feel cool to the touch or even possibly cold, but it's still going to be soft. It's not going to feel frozen. Freezing cold injuries, on the other hand, these are local cold injuries occur when ice crystals form between the cells of the skin. And our freezing cold injury, soft tissue injuries are more commonly referred to as frostbite. <clears throat> Where we tend to see frostbite is on the furthest points away from the trunk, the very peripheral areas. So fingertips, toes, also we see it in the face, the nose, the ears, and cheeks because they're often exposed to those cold environments as well. 
And it's important to note that these cold injuries like frostbite requiring much colder temperature than it takes for generalized hypothermia to be present. So if we have a patient that we're treating for frostbite, there's a good possibility that they're also hypothermic as well. So that's something that we definitely need to be assessing for and treating if we note it. <clears throat> so predisposing factors for frostbite. Patient has any type of trauma in that cold environment. Again, that's probably reducing their mobility. They're going to be uh, able, unable to leave that cold environment. Extremes of age, wet clothing, tight footwear. Again, that's reducing blood flow to that area. Use of alcohol, high altitudes, losing the blood, and patients that have a history of arterial sclerosis are more prone to it as well because of that reduction of, of adequate circulation. So the early stages of frostbite usually involves the tips of the ears, nose, cheekbones, tips of the fingers, tips of the toes. And during these early stages of frostbite, the patient is normally unaware that it's occurring. Their body, they've been out in the cold for a little bit. That air, Those areas are probably already numb. So now they're getting some permanent damage and they are not aware of it. It's commonly develops through direct contact with cold objects, air, or water. And during the early sta stages, the skin begins to turn a waxy gray color or even a yellowish color. <clears throat> Patients are gonna start having loss of feeling and sensation and or a tingling sensation in those exposed areas or where the damage is occurring. But again, that, that's probably already happened previously as well for being out in a cold environment. The skin is still gonna feel soft to the touch, uh, but it is gonna be extremely cold to the touch as well. Later stages involves the skin and even deeper tissues beneath. Skin now is going to be either a white, it's going to be white and waxy, and it's going to feel uh, frozen. It's going to feel firm to the touch or completely solid to the touch and frozen. It's very common during these later stages of frostbite that blistering is going to start to develop. And it's when that area begins to thaw that it becomes blotchy, mottled, turned dark, kind of that very purplish, darkish blue color. And frostbite does, can result in permanent tissue loss. <clears throat> so you can see here the, the frostbite, lower extremities, you can see the blood right there is followed from blisters that ended up popping on their own that bluish kind of color to it, purplish color. Right here, again, you can see it's kind of white. And then those blisters have formed as well. And that's what it's going to look like as it continues to thaw out. So again, just totally blue, blotchy colored, 
In this case, obviously, frostbite, that grayish blue, purplish color to it. Permanent tissue loss. Guarantee you this patient's going to lose all of their toes. They're going to amputate all of them. Toenail right there that gets me every time I see it. Now it's kind of curled back. So our assessment-based approach for cold-related emergencies. Scene size up, ensure your own safety. We need to know, we should know what the external environment is. We need to take precautions and make sure that we're dressed appropriately for the weather conditions. So note the temperature, wind chills, snow on the ground, ice, et cetera, the mechanisms of heat loss. Does the patient have any predisposing factors? Primary assessment or general impression as soon as we lay eyes on the patient. We need to note, is the patient's clothing wet? If it is, one of our first priorities after ABCs is to strip them, dry them off, cover them up with dry clothing or a blanket. Are they properly dressed for the environment? If we're inside a residence, do we note the temperature inside the residence? Is it abnormally cold in there? Patient been using drugs or alcohol? Does patient have any type of injuries that may also make them more predisposed to hypothermia? Assessmental status, uh, ABCs, respirations are, can be slow. Again, as that core temperature continues to drop, may eventually stop. They're breathing adequately on their own. Maintain O2 sats at or above 94%. Because of the major vasoconstriction that's going to be occurring, we may not get an accurate, adequate, or an accurate, sorry, pulse ox reading on our pulse oxes. Cold temperature, cold fingers, we tend to not get the best readings. So again, use your other assessment tools to determine the need for oxygenation. If there's any doubt, put them on O2. Consider the possibility of trauma. Take spinal precautions if we do suspect trauma. Check pulses carefully. If it is completely absent, begin chest compressions followed by ventilations. At least initially for a hypothermic patient, we're gonna start CPR like we would on any other patient. Hypothermic patient is a high priority for transport. Secondary assessment, get the patient out of that cold environment. Again, if they were wet, we're going to strip clothing immediately, cover them on a warm, put them in a warm blanket, load them in the back of our truck with the heaters going. Patient's conscious, we're going to go through our history, current past history, and during that history assessment, noticing is there any predisposing factors to hypothermia. And we need to, again, try to determine the length of time that the patient was in that cold environment. Physical exam, if indicated to do so, and indications of trauma, any signs of hypothermia, looking at the fingers, the toes, et cetera, for those uh, freezing injuries, frostbite, baseline vital signs, temperature if, if possible. Protocols allow you to take a core temperature. That is going to be the best. However, if not, we may just use a temp panic if that's what, what we have and our protocols allow us to do. You may not get an accurate reading, and it may just read low but at least that's at uh, some type of starting point. Signs, symptoms of hypothermia to be on the lookout for. Again, decreasing mental status, loss or deterioration of motor and sensory functions, changes in vital signs, initially rapid pulse, 
Then again, as the core temperature continues to drop, it'll start slowing. Initial increased breathing rate, again, then it's gonna start slowing. Falling of the blood pressure, red to pale to cyanotic skin as well. Again, kind of talks about the, the progression of hypothermia, pretty much already talked about. So stages of hypothermia and associated physiologic changes. So again, as that temperature drops, 95 to 91. This is going to be shivering early on. Again, as it starts falling below that 95, they're going to start losing the ability to shiver. Your body's still trying to fight it, still trying to compensate for it. So we're going to have an increase in metabolic rate. You may have amnesia, difficulty in speaking, develop blood pressure, uh, in speaking develop. Blood pressure remains normal, uh, moderate, 89.6 to 85.2. Stupor, oxygen consumption decreases by 25%. Their metabolic rate is now starting to slow down, so their oxygen demand is also not as much as well. So again, that hypothermia actually kind of plays a protective role on these patients. Oxygen demand decreases, meaning they can survive longer without as much oxygen. Shivering, again, is going to be ceased by this point. Cardiac dysrhythmias develop an ability to maintain body temperature independently of ambient temperature, uh, heart rate, cardiac output reduced by one third, temperatures decline, insulin becomes ineffective. That's again kind of your our body's last worry right now is insulin. Decrease in consciousness, pupils dilate. Severe, susceptible, V-fib, they're gonna be cardiac arrest. Oxygen consumption continues to decrease, heart rate decreases, reflex, voluntary muscles are lost, cerebral blood flow decreases, cardiac output declines, pulmonary edema may develop, significant hypotension, 68 to 48, heart rate declines by 80 cent, deteriorates to pulses. So again, kind of just showing that progression throughout the body. So our care for generalized hypothermia. Remove the patient from the environment and prevent further heat loss. So again, get the patient out of that cold environment. Uh, cover them with a warm blanket. If their clothing is wet, remove the clothing. Get them in the back of the truck. Turn the heaters on in the back of the truck. Handle the patient gently. Again, rough handling can cause dysrhythmias, can cause the patient to go into cardiac arrest. Maintain adequate oxygenation. If possible, your service carries them. We can use warm, humidified oxygen. They make oxygen uh, warmers. In this area, we typically don't carry them. If you worked in a colder environment, like in a mountainous region, very high possibility you do carry oxygen warmers. If the patient goes into cardiac arrest, immediately initiate CPR with chest compressions, apply the AED. We're gonna treat it at least initially, a hypothermic patient in cardiac arrest like we would any other patient in cardiac arrest. However, after that first shock or that first no shock advised, you need to follow your protocols about repeated shocks. Our protocols in this region is we're going to do one shock with an AD. If it's unsuccessful, we're going to focus on CPR and warming the patient up before we attempt additional shocks. Paramedic level, we, focus, we do the same thing, start IVs, 
through that whole gamut, but we also start focusing on warming the patient up before we were pushing any type of cardiac drugs into the patient as well. And we should or can consider actively rewarming patients with moderate and severe hypothermia. Again, this is going to be based on protocols when we actively rewarm. So we have active rewarming technique of aggressively applying heat to warm the patient's body and includes, we cover the patient with blankets. We have heat packs to the groin, armpits, and chest, and high heat in the EMS unit. So the thing that really makes this active rewarming are the heat packs. Blankets and high heat of the ambulance alone, that's not active rewarming, that would be passive rewarming. We're gonna do this for any cold patient. Put them in a, wrap them in a blanket, turn on the heaters in the back of the truck. Again, what makes this active rewarming is the application of those heat packs. So follow your protocols when to actively rewarm. Experts disagree on when to actively rewarm patients. Some experts state that every patient that's hypothermic, we should aggressively actively rewarm them. Other experts state that it should only be done if the transport time is long. It's best handled in a hospital setting. So a concern of why it's kind of controversial and why we don't do it for every patient is rewarming shock. It occurs if rewarming is preferred performed too rapidly. All their blood vessels are constricted really tight because it's cold. We start aggressively, actively rewarming, putting on those hot packs, trying to get a, we get a sudden increase in core temperature. All of a sudden, those blood vessels dilate. Whatever blood pressure they did have, we just tanked it. If we are going to actively rewarm in the field, we should focus on raising the temperature by one degree Fahrenheit per hour. So... Again, it's going to be, it needs to be very controlled. Again, we don't have the best ways of monitoring core temperature in a pre-hospital setting to begin with. So consult protocols for guidance. We primarily do passive rewarming in this region. So one way to actively rewarm a patient, place heat packs in the groin, armpits on the chest, insulate with pack, insulate the packs to prevent burns. If we're using heat packs, they do not need to make direct contact with the skin. It could possibly burn the skin. Cover with blankets to maximize the effects of the heat pack. Again, you can lose temperature through the top of your head, so cover the top of the patient's head as well. Again, we primarily do passive rewarming, and that should be done on every patient. Uh, hypothermic patients designed to not really warm the patient up. It's just to prevent them from losing any more heat. Blankets, turning on the heater in the ambulance. We do not want to allow the patients to take any type of stimulants. Again, they're already prone to cardiac dysrhythmias for being uh, hypothermic, so we don't want them to take any stimulants. That includes smoking or nicotine and includes coffee as well. We also never want to rub or massage the patient's arms or legs. We're not going to rub them to try to warm them up as well. Again, they're prone to cardiac dysrhythmias, blood clots. We can cause them to go into cardiac arrest or throw a clot, go into arrhythmia by handling them too roughly. And other than that, supportive measures transport the patient to the hospital. 
Again, passive rewarming includes wrapping the patient in a blanket and turning the heat up in the patient compartment. I mean, the heat, I mean, it's probably going to be uncomfortable for us in the back of the truck. That truck, the temperature in the back of the truck should not be there for our comfort, it's for what's best for the patient. So it may be we're on there sweating, sweat dripping off our foreheads and arms and everything, and we got to just man up and deal with it until we get to the hospital. For immersion hypothermia, again, patient was found in water. Instruct the patient in the water to make the least effort needed to stay afloat. Again, the more they are thrashing around, they're drawing colder water to them with each movement. It's going to cause their temperature to drop faster. So they do what they can, but only move enough to try to stay afloat. We need to remove the patient from the water in a horizontal position. We're not going to be the ones that are removing the patient from the cold or frozen water. That typically is a specialized rescue. Remove wet clothing. Once we remove wet clothing, dry them off, cover them in a blanket. Other than that, we're going to treat it just like we would any other hypothermic patient. So frostbite, early or superficial, signs and symptoms to be on the lookout for. Blanching of the skin, whitening of the skin, loss of sensation. Tissue, again, during early signs should still be soft. And if it does start rewarming, it's going to have a tingling sensation, tingling sensation during rewarm. Late or deep, white, waxy skin, firm, frozen, feeling upon palpation, where we start seeing swelling and blisters. And as it begins to thaw, skin can be mottled, cyanotic, or start turning that deep, dark, purplish color. So our treatment for freezing cold injuries. Again, we're going to start off the same. Do our primary assessment. They're still out in the cold environment. Big focus is going to be to get them out of that cold environment. And it's very important with these type of injuries that we never allow the tissue to thaw if there is any possibility of refreezing. So if we're in the back of the truck, there's no possibility of it refreezing. So we're not worried about it thawing out. However, if we're in the wilderness and we got to hike out for two hours with the patient, now we do got to be cautious and take efforts. If it does start to thaw, that we do what we can to prevent it from refreezing again. If it refreezes again, damage is going to be deeper and more severe. Supportive measures for the rest of the patient, maintain O2 sets at or above 94%. Prevent further injury to the affected part. So we can remove jewelry or wet or restrictive clothing. Patient has a ring on the finger and they're having frostbite. We need to remove that jewelry. Possibly need to cut the rings so we don't cause further damage. We can immobilize the extremity in a splint to help protect it. We don't want to rub or massage the area as well to try to warm it up. If we start rubbing or massaging it, we're grinding those ice crystals against the skin, and that's going to cause deeper damage. Cover the area with dry, sterile dressing. Don't purposely try to break any blisters if present. They may rupture on their own, and that's okay, but we're not going to purposely break them. We do not apply direct heat to the affected part. We're not going to put a hot pack on the, the frostbite bitten area. 
and we don't want to allow the patient to walk as well. Again, we also have to worry about these patients being hypothermic as well. For later DEET, rewarming may be necessary for long delayed transport. So again, follow your local protocols about when to try to warm up a frostbitten area. If we are going to warm up frostbite, we do rapid rewarming. And the rewarming is going to be very painful for the patient as well. So for generalized hypothermia, low core temperature, if we're going to rewarm them with active rewarming, we want to raise them up very slowly, one degree an hour. If we're rewarming frostbite, we want to warm it up very quickly. So how the proper way to warm up frostbite or thaw out frostbite is to immerse the affected part in warm water bath. And that temperature of the water has to be above uh, core temperature, body temperature, normal body temperature. So 110 degrees around that time is going around that area is preferred. So above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. We have to monitor the water temperature, keep adding warm water to make sure that that temperature, the water, the bath doesn't drop below the temp. And we need to make sure that we're constantly stirring it so we're not getting hot spots when we add new water or we're not getting one area that's colder than the rest. <laughs> And we keep that tissue in that warm water until it is soft, color and sensation returns. And again, it's gonna be painful for the patient. So how do we get 110 degrees water in the back of an ambulance? You might know. I don't either. It's not, not very practical for us here. We don't have the equipment to do this. So in this area, you're not gonna do this. We're just gonna transport it. After thawed, apply dry sterile dressing, elevate the affected extremity. Elevation is going to help with things like swelling. And again, make sure that we're protecting it, not allowing it to refreeze. And again, other than that, we transport the patient as soon as possible. So again, trash can would work great. Water temp needs to be, or the water needs to be 100 to 110 degrees Fahrenheit. That's going to be a test question. We want to warm it up rapidly. Reassessment, reassess all cold emergency patients frequently. Again, they're prone to having dysrhythmias, et cetera, so just keep a close eye on them. Constantly monitor mental status, airway, and breathing. Patient does go pulseless. Apply the AED. The frostbite, trench foot, immersion foot. Make sure that we do reassess the affected area. And again, since they can change pretty quickly, we need to check their bottle signs every five minutes. Okay, any questions over heat exposure, or cold exposure, my bad. So we talked about cold-related emergencies. Now we're gonna move on to heat-related emergencies. So heat-related emergencies are grouped under the term hyperthermia, again, elevated temperature. Hypothermia is caused by an increase in the body's heat production or the inability to eliminate the heat that is produced. And there are three types of heat-related emergencies that we may come across. That includes heat cramps, heat exhaustion, and heat stroke, heat stroke being the most dangerous. 
So pathophysiology of heat cramps are muscle spasms that are related to an electrolyte imbalance in the body that is likely due to losing sodium through sweating. And it's just what it sounds like. All heat cramps are is patient got hot, started sweating, lost sodium, and now they're starting to have muscle cramps. It it, this is going to be the least serious heat-related condition that we are going to run on. Where the cramps occur at, typically the large flexor groups are usually affected first. And we typically see heat cramps for those patients that are working or playing in a hot environment. Heat exhaustion is a mild state of shock due to excessive sweating. So they're getting a little bit of hypo, uh, hypovolemic because they're sweating so profusely. Not only that, they're getting some vasodilation as well. Vasodilation leads to blood pooling beneath the skin as the body attempts to increase heat loss. And in very extreme cases, organs are not very well perfused because of the vasodilation and the loss of fluid. Again, this also normally occurs in those that are working or playing out in a hot environment. And this is going to be a big thing to remember that's going to help us differentiate between heat stroke and heat exhaustion is during heat exhaustion, their core temperature remains normal or is just slightly elevated. It's not going to be dramatically high for heat exhaustion. Heat stroke, on the other hand, thermoregulation fails and the body is unable to cool itself. And one thing that's unique about heat exhaustion, kind of like much like hypothermia, when they lose the ability to shiver for heat stroke, they have lost the ability to sweat. And a lot of patients do. So many patients lose the ability to sweat. So their skin may present with being hot and dry to the touch. And anytime you see in a hot environment, skin is hot and dry to the touch, we should immediately think about heat stroke, and heat stroke again is life-threatening. So again, skin may be hot and dry, or if they're still having the ability to sweat, maybe hot and moist, or if they've lost the ability to sweat, but all the sweat hasn't evaporated off their skin yet, they may be at least moist right now. We are starting to get an, a pretty dramatic elevation in core temperature as well, and that high body temperature can damage brain cells. Mortality rate ranges from 20 to 80%. And it may be classical or classic, non-exertional or exertional. Again, depending on what the patient was doing when it occurred. And for us, it really doesn't matter. Treatment's going to be the exact same. So some predisposing factors for heat-related conditions. Again, the biggest factor is going to be the climate. The hotter it is, the more humid it is, the more severe more likely heat exhaustion, heat stroke, heat cramps are going to be present. If they were exercising or doing some type of strenuous activity, working out in that hot environment. Again, the extremes of age. Some pre-existing illnesses can make it more likely. Drug and medication use. This includes things like antihypertensives makes them more prone to heat-related emergencies, alcohol, 
and if they're using diuretics, like Lasix is a very common diuretic. Also a lack of acclimation. They immediately go from cooler environment to a hotter environment and don't allow their bodies to adjust. And they immediately start doing physical activity outside in the new environment that their body's not used to. So exercise and strenuous activity can cause a loss of more than one liter of sweat per hour. So our assessment-based approach for heat-related emergencies. Start with our scene size up. Again, we need to recognize that it's hot outside. Needed to protect yourself from overexposures to the heat as well, making sure that we're staying well hydrated. Uh, again, we have ways to cool ourselves if need be. Check surroundings for clues to heat exposure or exertion. Again, note the heat and humidity. If we have access to the patient's medications, look for medications and drugs. Again, that may make it more pre, uh, predisposed to getting heat-related emergencies. Again, high heat, high humidity. The higher the heat, the higher humidity, the more dangerous those temperatures, those that environment is going to be. Moving on to our primary assessment, form a general impression as soon as we eyes on the patient. Assess mental status, go through your ABCs, maintain oxygenation, talk to your patients if they're still conscious, obtain their chief complaint, and check the pulse and skin, warmth of the skin. Again, does it feel just warm to the touch? Does it feel extremely hot to the touch? Secondary assessment, move the patient to a cooler environment. Get them out of the heat. Get them in the back of our truck with our air conditioners running. Pain history, medications, last oral intake. What have they been drinking? Have they been staying hydrated? Or is it the first tech football game of the year and they've been drinking all the time, but they've been drinking alcohol instead of water? Events leading up to the situation, physical exam, full set of vital signs. Check a core temp. Remember, if it's slightly elevated or normal, it's probably heat exhaustion. If it's significantly elevated, then we are believing it is heat stroke. Temps normal, their only complaint is muscle cramps. It's probably heat cramps. Weakness, exhaustion, rapid pulse that weakens over time. You can have tachypnea. Initially, may start going to bradypnea, slow breathing rate over time as well. Headache, very common complaint. If the patient is seizing, they're seizing because of that dramatically increasing core temperature. If we have a heat-related patient that is seizing, if we're suspecting heat stroke, loss of appetite, nausea and vomiting, we're having pretty significant altered mental status, that's more indicative of heat stroke. And skin may be cool or normal. That would be heat exhaustion and moist or hot and dry. Again, hot and dry, that's telling us for sure that we're dealing with heat stroke. Again, the signs and symptoms that we've previously talked about, picture of them, 
So our emergency care for heat-related emergencies with moist, pale, normal to cool skin. So that right there is telling us we are not dealing with heat stroke. We're dealing with either heat exhaustion or heat cramps because of the skin condition. So our treatment, again, primary assessment, then we need to focus on getting the patient to a cooling environment. Supportive measures maintain adequate oxygenation. We can strip the patient, remove heavy clothing. And we can also take steps to cool the patient by applying cold, wet compresses or by misting the patient with cooler water. If they are showing signs of weakness, dizziness, uh, starting to see a low blood pressure, we can place them in a supine position with feet elevated, put them in that shock position. Again, if the skin is moist, pale, and normal to cool, place the patient in a cold environment, environment mist with water, or apply cold, wet compresses, and fan <laughs> to permit promote cooling. Transport the patient, sorry. We transport the patient if and when the patient, if they have altered mental status and shown heat-related emergencies, they definitely need to go to the hospital. Is vomiting nauseated or will not drink any fluids by mouth? Their core temperature is above 100, they definitely need to go. Or if getting them out of that hot environment, we may our protocols may allow us to give them sips of water or drinks of water. But if they are still symptomatic and they're not feeling better after we get them cooled down a little bit out of that heat, then they need to go to the hospital. Our care for patients with hot skin that is moist or dry. So hot skin, we're now we're referring to heat stroke. So heat stroke is a dire emergency and cooling is the highest priority except for primary assessment ABCs. So again, we start off, make sure those ABCs are taken care of. Then we're going to move into cooling the patient. Get the patient out of that hot environment. Again, get them in the back of our trucks with our air conditioners going. Strip the patient down, remove all clothing. Again, supplemental O2 as needed to maintain O2 sets at or above 94%. And we're going to begin immediate cool. How we're going to do this, we can several ways. We can pour tepid water over the patient. We don't want ice cold water, but room temperature water is good. Cold packs to the groin, armpits, each side of the neck, behind the knees. Fan aggressively and keep the skin wet. Again, we could spray them down with water, cold packs, fan aggressively. Then we can even possibly wrap them in a wet sheet and continue fanning as well. Again, we need to get the patient's core temperature down. Be prepared for complications that go along with heat stroke. That include things like seizures, vomiting, have suction ready to go, and if they vomit, we gotta worry about aspiration. Again, this is a dire emergency, so immediate rapid transport. And throughout transport, we're continuing to pull the patient as well and consider ALS backup if need be. Not much they can do different other than they're going to give them IV fluids and they can manage the airway if it, if it comes to that as well. 
So heat stroke versus heat exhaustion, the key to remember, assessing the patient's core temp will help differentiate between the two. Heat exhaustion will have a normal or slightly elevated core temp. Heat stroke will have a significant elevation in core temperature. If we suspect just heat cramps, remove the patient from the hot environment, consult medical direction about giving sips of low concentration salt water or a commercial product like Gatorade, apply moist towels to the forehead, cramped muscles, and try to stretch the cramped muscles out, and then educate the patient about the event and tell them, hey, you need to make sure you're staying well hydrated, continue to drink Gatorade, and you need to avoid any type of exertion, especially with that area you're cramping at, for about 12 hours or it's going to just start cramping up on you again. Reassessment for heat-related emergencies, mental status, ABCs, vital signs every five minutes, especially for heat stroke, maybe not so much for heat exhaustion, but definitely for heat stroke. Monitoring core temperature if it's indicated, and then monitoring our treatments to see if we're having any desired effects. They're doing construction for search tech. Search tech's getting ready to move over here in a little bit. And that sounds like they have a sawzall out. And it sounds like a damn helicopter is just hovering right above our heads. So, exercise associated hyponatremia. This is also known as water intoxication. It's not a core temperature disorder. It's what it sounds like. Patients are drinking way too much water. It's a severe electrolyte imbalance from the depletion of sodium related to water content. Again, they're just drinking in drinking way too much water. Results from consuming large amounts of water during prolonged physical activity. This is very hard to accomplish. Frequently occurs with exercise or exertion for more than four hours. Since we have a loss of sodium, we're getting kind of fluid shifts. That results in cerebral edema where it's starting to pile up in the brain or pulmonary edema with crackles, rails, lung symptoms. Care for it. It's, there's nothing we're going to be able to do for it. It's going to be supported. Fowler's position with the head slightly elevated or elevated at least 40 to 30 to 40 degrees, placed in the left lateral recumbent position if they're unconscious to help protect if they do ask, uh, vomit. Cerebral edema is increasing intracranial pressure inside the skull. Anytime you have an increase in intracranial pressure, it's very likely to induce vomiting. And vomiting with increased intracranial pressure is typically described as projectile, meaning very forceful, hard vomiting. Patient may be lying completely supine on the stretcher, have projectile vomiting, and the vomiting is hitting the roof of your ambulance. That's severe. No fluids, it's the last thing patient needs is more fluids or water. And that cerebral edema can also cause seizures in the patient as well. All right, moving on to other environmental emergencies. One of those is snake bites. There's about 45,000 people per year bitten by snakes in the United States that have been reported of those 45,000 that are reported, about 7,000 are from a poisonous or venomous snake. U.S. poisonous snakes include pit vipers, 
coral snakes. And with a venomous snake bite, symptoms usually begin immediately if the bite was envenomated. So just because they were bit by a rattlesnake, for example, doesn't really doesn't necessarily mean that the bite was envenomated. It may have had what's known as that a dry bite where they were bit, but for some reason they weren't injected with that venom. Pit vipers are characterized by one or two puncture marks. And pit vipers, they have the fangs, they have two bite marks. So poisonous snake characteristics, things to be on the lookout for to help us identify a venomous snake. Again, pit vipers are gonna have large fangs, except for coral snakes, they have more traditional, just like a roll, roll of teeth. Elliptical eyes, pit vipers have a pit between the eye and mouth. Pit vipers typically have blotches on the skin. Coral snakes tend to have rings. Pit vipers have large triangular heads. So that's what a pit viper may look like. Again, we have the elliptical eyes. We have the two fangs that where the venom is injected. There's the venom sac underneath the skin, eyes, nostril, and in between there we have that pit. Pit vipers again include rattlesnakes, cottonmouths. Copperheads. So the poisonous snakes in the United States, again, rattlesnakes, cottonmouths, copperheads, those are all pit vipers. And then we have the coral snake. So signs and symptoms of a pit viper bite, which is more than likely if we do run on a venomous snake bite here, it's probably going to be a pit viper, probably a rattlesnake more than anything. Severe burning pain at the site of injury, swelling at the site of the bite, and this swelling may be massive, bluish discolorization, systemic, systemic reactions as well, such as weakness, nausea and vomiting, increase in sweating, and can cause bleeding at various distant sites throughout the body as well. So that's what a pit viper bite may look like is the two puncture marks from the fangs. And you can see the reddening already starting to occur around that bite as well. What we should do with snake bites right here, we see the bite marks and you can notice the pin marks that are around it. It's what we need to do. We're helping keep track of swelling. So when we get on scene, we do our primary assessment. We're doing our secondary assessment. We notice the bite area. We need to trace the margins or the outline of where that swelling is located. And then we should also time it as well, right at the time that we wrote those marks. A few minutes later, we start noticing that swelling is starting to increase or reddening is starting to increase. We're going to trace the new borders of it. And again, we're going to time it again as well. Again, that's just helping us, helping the hospital keep track of how fast that swelling is occurring. <clears throat> The venom from a pit viper can cause seizures, syncopal episodes, vision problems, alterations in mental status, could even possibly lead to shock. 
And the signs and symptoms that the patient presents with is going to be very dependent on a lot of factors, depending on how much venom was injected into the patient, how large the patient is, patient's overall health, et cetera. That's all going to play a role in how serious their signs and symptoms are. And again, I talked about dry bites. Could be a dry bite where they were bit by a rattlesnake, but the rattlesnake may have just bitten something earlier trying to eat and didn't have any venom stored back up yet. So they may have been bit by a rattlesnake, but doesn't necessarily mean that it was envenomated. Coral snakes, small snake with red, yellow, and black bands. There's other snakes that mimic it, but are not venomous. So there's a, a saying that helps you remember the band pattern on a coral snake. If it's red on yellow, will kill a fellow. Red on black, venom will lack. And again, we're talking about how what color the rings are touching. So if the red and yellow rings are touching, like they are here, that means it is venomous. If the red and black rings were touching, then it would not be a venomous snake. Found in southern states, injects venom with teeth using a chewing motion that leaves puncture wounds. So signs and symptoms of coral snake bite. Venom causes paralysis of the nervous system. And the signs and symptoms from that venom may be delayed from one all the way up to eight hours. The venom can also cause or produce bizarre behavior in the patient. Paralysis of eye movement. It can paralyze the diaphragm, chest muscles where the patient's no longer breathing. And local redness and swelling as well. So again, the coral snake does not have fangs, they just have teeth, so it's just going to look like a chewing motion on the patient where the bite mark was, and you kind of see it right here, the teeth marks. It looks like the guy was playing, probably playing with the snake, and it reached up and bit him. Most of the time for bites, we tend to see them in the lower extremities, the feet, uh, again, lower legs, because they walk up on the snake. Again, factors that may affect snake bite severity. Biggest factor is going to be, again, the amount of venom that was injected. Where the bite occurred at, again, most of the time it's going to be in the extremities. If somehow it gets bit in a torso, it may be more severe. We also, not only do you got, we got to worry about the venom itself, but there may be pathogens in that venom as well. Weight and size of the patient patient's overall health, and the amount of physical activity following the bite as well. If they got bit and then ran or walked a long distance, heart rate increased, that just sped up the circulation of that toxin throughout the rest of the body. Insect bites and stings. Most bites and stings from insects are not going to be a serious concern. Biggest concern is going to be if the patient's having an anaphylactic reaction from it. And many patients are allergic to the stings of bees, wasps, hornets, yellow jackets. If there's no allergy to it, then localized signs and symptoms are going to be a sharp stinging pain where they were stung at, itching, redness, tenderness, and swelling. 
And for just routine bites and stings where the patient's not having an allergic reaction to it, our treatment is we treat it like any other wound. Cleanse it, soak water, move on. Spider bites, there are numerous widespread in the United States, and there are many types of spiders that can bite. In the United States, there's only two poisonous spiders. That is the female black widow and the brown recluse spider. They deliver, can deliver serious, even life-threatening bites. And just like with snakes or anything else, your safety is going to be the most important when we're dealing with these uh, bite, bites and stings. So black widow spider. Black widow spider is very characteristic appearance. They're glossy uh, black body with a red hourglass marking on the abdomen. Found in all states except for Alaska. They're about one inch in length with legs extended. And the bite from a black widow could possibly be fatal. Now, most of the time they are not fatal, but there is a possibility that they can be. They prefer dry, dim places such as wood piles, trash, etc. And they tend to be more dangerous for the extremes of age, very old, very young, chronic illnesses, hypertension, increase the risk of severe infections, severe reactions, sorry. So yeah, so that black widow looks like a glossy back with that red hourglass shaped on it. With black widow spiders, their venom is a neurotoxin. So this will cause a systemic reaction. Compare that to the other type of spider where it only causes a local reaction, black widow spiders, that poison venom travels throughout the body. Initial pinprick sensation that becomes a dull ache where they were bitten at. And the thing that black widow spider bites really do, it causes severe muscle spasms and cramping, especially in the abdominal region. Because of those muscle spasms, the abdomen often feels rigid, board-like, dizziness, nausea, and vomiting. Again, if it's a bad bite, respiratory distress in severe cases, there is an antivenom available. But it's only given for the very young, very old, or those that have a very bad reaction to that bite. If you're not a candidate for the antivenom, you pretty much, they're going to treat your signs and symptoms and you're going to have to write it out. One of our dispatchers at UMCEMS was bitten by a black widow. He spent several days in the hospital, said it was the worst thing ever, uh, but he was not a candidate, wasn't bad off enough, I don't think, anyway to receive the antibiotic. So again, black widow spiders causes a systemic reaction throughout the body. A brown recluse spider, on the other hand, only causes a localized reaction. Brown recluse is characteristically brown with a darker violin-shaped mark on the back. They too prefer dark areas. And they live mostly in the southern and central parts of the country, but are found throughout the continental U.S. And we have both of them here. And that's what a brown recluse looks like. So we have the body, and then you can see that violin shape kind of on its back. 
So the venom here is a cytotoxin and produces localized signs and symptoms. So it's not going to travel. That venom is not going to travel throughout the rest of the body. Wherever the bite occurred at, that's where we're going to see the signs and symptoms. And what it causes is a large non-healing ulcer that increases in size. So that toxin that when they bite him is basically just killing all the, the skin and the, the tissue around that bite. And the longer it goes without treatment, the larger that area, that wound is going to get. Again, it kills the tissues, cells, the skin, causes local gangrene. And there is no anti-venom available for a brown recluse spike. So what the patient needs to get rid of the toxin is typically going to be surgical excision of the area. They're going to go through there and they're going to cut out all of that dead and dying tissue where the toxin is located. Then they're probably going to cut a little bit extra of the good tissues just to ensure that they've captured all of or removing all of that toxin as well. So that's what the initial bite is going to look like. Doesn't look too serious, quite a bit of redness. There's day three, a lot of redness in that thumb. Wound appears to be getting larger, kind of the same, starting to open up. Day six, you can see all of that soft tissue damage and that wound's getting larger still. There's day nine, again, he didn't see care quick enough. You see how much tissue damage is below that skin in day 10. Scorpions. There's only one species in the United States that produces a bite that can be fatal, and there's the name of it right there. And the severity, just like with snake bites, is going to depend on the amount of venom that is injected. And signs and symptoms of a poisonous scorpion bite include sharp pain, drooling, poor coordination, incontinence, and can lead to seizures as well. Fire ants. Fire ants can both bite and sting. Has a painful bite that uh, produces fluid-filled vesicles, and that you can see those down here. Again, localized reaction can affect the entire extremity. They fight in groups. So if you get bit by one, you're probably getting bit by several of them, possibly hundreds of them. Again, produces the painful vesicles that are fluid, that are filled with fluid. And again, may have numerous bites covering an entire extremity or lower extremities, et cetera. Again, typically, they're not life-threatening unless you're allergic to them. Ticks. Ticks can carry uh, tick fever, rocky uh, mountain spotted fever, Lyme disease, and other diseases. So if we run on a patient and we find a tick, we need to remove the tick promptly by pulling them out with, of the skin with tweezers. Make sure that we get the entire tick, legs, everything. Some of them may be embedded into the skin. And then we need to wash that wound with soap and water and apply an antiseptic. You'll notice this has a bullseye or a the ringed pattern from a tick bite that typically kind of 
correlates with Lyme disease. That's one thing that they look for is that bullseye type of rash. So you can see the difference in the size of the tick. This is a tick that hasn't been feeding, that it's not filled with blood. Compared that to a tick that has been feeding and is now filled with blood. So our assessment-based approach for bites and stings. Start with your scene size up, exercise caution to avoid the snakes or insects. Again, we don't want to get bit as well. Look for clues to what may have caused the bite. Look, listen for swarming bees or hornets. Again, there's no expectation of us to rush into swarming bees or hornets. Once we get to the patient, we go through our primary assessment. As soon as we lay eyes on them, we form a general impression. Assess mental status using the AVPU mnemonic. Go through your ABCs. Oxygenate as indicated to do so. Again, be alert for signs and symptoms of anaphylaxis when assessing the airway and breathing. If we do suspect anaphylaxis, remember our treatment is epinephrine very rapidly. Secondary assessment, look for signs and symptoms, again, of anaphylactic shock. Intervene immediately if we note it. Look for indications of localized reaction. Treat similarly to injected poisonings. Again, remove stingers if they're there. Wash the area, soap and water. And again, make sure that we're constantly monitoring to see if an anaphylactic reaction does appear. <clears throat> again, main things we're looking at is difficulty breathing, falling blood pressure. So listen to lung sounds, check that blood pressure. And again, treat accordingly if we note it. Epinephrine, auto injector, 0.3 milligrams. We know wheezing in the lung sounds, which we will with an anaphylactic reaction. We can also give bronchodilators and request ALS backup. So sign symptoms of a bite or sting. Again, did the patient tell, tell you, hey, I was bit or stung by something? May note a wheel, which is a raised circular reddened area from a bite or a sting, or we just may not obviously note that, hey, that's where they were bit or stung. Severe pain or burning, area may become numb over time. <clears throat> Redness or discolorization to the skin, swelling, depending on what it was that bit them, they may also start complaining of weakness and or faintness as well. Dizziness, chills, fever, nausea, vomiting, or we may note the stinger still in place. And again, if the stinger is still in place, we need to remove it by scraping. So again, remove the stinger by scraping it. If it's present, we don't want to pinch and pull because again, if the venom sac is still attached for bee stings and we pinch that venom sac, we're just injecting the rest of the venom. Again, we want to wash the area of the bite or sting with soap and water. Remove jewelry or constricting objects in case that area does begin to swell. We want to remove the ring while we still can. If that swelling occurs and we can't remove a ring, our only option at that point is to cut the ring off. Lower the affected area below the heart if snake bite. Uh, again, that's just going to, we want to kind of reduce uh, 
the effects and so forth. Our local protocols, though, if for snake bites, it is a neutral elevation. Apply a cold pack to insect bites, but we do not use cold packs for snake or marine animal bites. Follow medical direction concerning the use of constricting bands for snake bites. Our local protocols is nothing. Not used in local protocols. So for us, treatment of a snake bite, neutral elevation, cleanse it, go. Again, on the lookout for possibility of anaphylaxis. We want to limit patient activity, keep them calm. Again, the more elevated their heart rate is, the faster that venom is circulating throughout their body. And then just constant reassessment throughout transport. Monitor the patient's airway, breathing, and circulation. Signs and symptoms, again, of anaphylaxis can take minutes to hours to develop. So, again, it's something to constantly keep an eye on throughout transport. So notes on snake bites. Again, our local protocol state neutral elevation, no ice packs, no constricting bands. There is for rattlesnake bites, there is uh, antivenoms. It's known as Crofab. A lot of the larger hospitals, UMC and Covenant probably both carry it. Even some of the rural hospitals carry it as well because they do see a lot of snake bites. So for us, just kind of know where that air, what hospital it's located at. And if we are running on a rattlesnake bite, we do transport it to a hospital that has that Crofab. And if the snake is dead on scene, do not bring the snake with us to the hospital. They're going to take our word for it on what it is, or we can take out your phone and snap a picture of it if you want to confirm with the hospital staff. Marine life bites and stings, something you're, if you stay in this area, you're never going to see. Most cases of marine poisonings occur when a person swims into or steps on a marine animal. Some of them are poisonous and toxic and the venom can cause extensive damage. With most marine life, though, the venom can be destroyed by heat. So that may be part of our treatment, supply heat to the area. Uh, jellyfish, anemones, corals, hydras, Portuguese man of wars, and others are examples of poisonous marine life or marine animals. And there are some effective antivenoms available, so try to identify the animal. Again, just some examples of what those different <laughs> marine life looks like. So our care for marine life poison, we treat these sim as similar as soft tissue injuries. Cleanse the site, soap and water, bandage, etc. We can use forceps to remove material that is stuck to the sting site on the surface of the flesh, then irrigate with water. Things like jellyfish, their tentacles still may be attached. They can still continue to sting. So if we notice that, we can remove that with forceps and then cleanse the area with soap water. If it's on the surface, though, if it's a temp, if spines or anything are embedded deep into the skin, we're, we're going to leave them alone, treat them as an impelled object. 
For jellyfish, coral, hydra, and amenity, remove the dry tentacles, pour vinegar over the area to help denature the toxin. So vinegar can actually help with the stinging and prevent the toxin from doing further damage. After that, we can apply heat or soak in hot water for 30 minutes or throughout transport. Somebody want to tell me what's not on these slides for a jellyfish? You do not piss or pee on a jellyfish stink. That is a old wives tale, probably made up by some frat guys during spring break looking for an excuse to trick their friend. So peeing on the site does not work. Do not do it. Lightning strike injuries. So patho of lightning strike, there are lightning bolts have about 100 million to 2 billion volts per bolt. Amperage as high as 200,000 amps. Duration is one to one hundredth to one to one thousandth of a second. They travel one to two million meters per second. And the temperature of a lightning bolt is between 15,000 to 60,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So needless to say, they're pretty dangerous if you're struck by one. They have a rapid expansion of air around the lightning bolt, can also cause damage. It can propel the person, throw the person. That can cause blunt force trauma to the patient. And since it's moving at such a quick speed, we got that pressure wave that's following it. Changing the air pressure can also cause damage to the body's air-containing cavities, such as ruptured eardrums. Heart nervous tissue are sensitive to electrical energy of light. So remember, all of our muscles, all of our nerves, et cetera, are carrying electrical impulses from our brain. Our heart runs off electrical impulses. So if we're struck by lightning, that electricity can again cause problems or damage to our heart and nervous system. Lightning can overwhelm, short circuit the body's electrical system. It may immediately cause a patient to go into cardiac arrest. And that electricity traveling through the body can also cause soft tissue and bone injuries as well. So there's four different mechanisms where a patient can be injured from a lightning strike. They can have what's known as a direct strike where the patient is physically struck with the lightning bolt. They can have a contact strike where the lightning strikes an object the patient is in contact with, patient standing underneath a pole, the pole gets struck by lightning. And since they're touching the pole, they also get electrocuted. You can have a splash or a side strike Lightning strikes object and then jumps from that object to the person to reach the ground. They can also have a ground current or step voltage strike where the lightning bolt is strikes pretty close to them and the ground around them is now energized and travels through them. So signs and symptoms of a lightning strike injury can have an effect on the nervous system. We can have altered mental status, retrograde, enterograde, amnesia. They don't remember what happened just before. They don't remember what happened right after. Weakness, pain, tingling, and numbness. Pale, cool, clammy skin, possible modeling, 
cyanosis of the skin. Can y'all still hear me? Okay, y'all froze for a little bit on my end. Can I have temporary paralysis, dizziness, vertigo, loss of pupillary function, and can cause seizures as well. Cardiac, it can affect the cardiac system as well. Cardiac arrest due to a systole or V-fib. Cause cardiac dysrhythmias, irregular pulses. It can affect the respiratory system, can cause respiratory distress, or it can cause complete respiratory arrest, apnea, no longer breathing. Skin, again, a lot of uh, heat is accompanied with them, so it can cause burns. Patients can also have a feathering pattern to their skin, which is a non-blanching, reddish-brown, firm pattern, and there's a picture of this feathering coming up. And again, they're traveling so fast and they have that pressure wave, it can cause damage to the muscles as well and joints, can cause dislocations, as well as fractures. So here's a picture of what that feathering, fern-like pattern looks like. You can kind of see how it moved throughout the skin. Also note right there, and this may not be from lightning, this may be from some other electricity. To me, and it's hard to tell from the picture, but that does look like an entrance wound of where that electricity possibly entered his body from. Other signs and symptoms, you can have unequal pupils, drooping eyelids, Again, ruptured eardrums are going to be pretty common if they survive. Tinnitus, or that ringing sensation in the ears, or it can cause total deafness in the patient as well. So our care and treatment for a lightning strike patient. We're going to focus on nervous system damage, possibly cardiac dysrhythmias. Start with your ABCs, just like we would with any other patient. Uh, paying close attention to that pulse rate. Ensure scene is safe. Clothing is on fire due to that heat. Put it out. If they were struck by lightning, we're going to assume they have a spinal injury. That's just a lot of that pressure wave. They're probably thrown. We're just going to go ahead and assume they have a spinal injury. So we're going to take spinal precautions. Again, other than that, Supportive measures. If they have an altered mental status, ensure that airway remains open. If they're in cardiac arrest, start CPR, apply the AED. If the patient's not breathing adequately on their own, poor rate and or poor tidal volume, we begin positive pressure ventilations with O2. If they are breathing adequately, we're going to maintain adequate oxygenation. Again, assume they have that spinal injury, so maintain your spine precautions and then rapid transport to the hospital while we're continuously monitoring the patient's condition. Moving on to altitude sickness, high altitude sickness. At high altitude, atmospheric pressure is decreased, which makes less oxygen av available. Again, there's less atmospheric pressure, 
which means that there's less oxygen available for the patient to breathe. So since there's less oxygen available, that decrease in oxygen can aggravate some pre-existing medical conditions. So those that are in poorer health are not going to do as well as healthier people at higher altitudes. But healthy individuals can have problems at high altitudes. High altitude is over 5,000 feet, but serious illness usually occurs at altitudes over 8,000 feet, especially with a rapid ascent. Rapid ascent, body doesn't can't, does not have time to become acclimated to what's going on. So signs and symptoms of high altitude sickness. Patients are going to have malaise or that general ill feeling, loss of appetite, headaches. If they're up there long enough, they can have sleep disturbances, insomnia, and start having respiratory distress on exertion. Again, less oxygen. They start moving, walking, body craves more oxygen, so they start having that sensation of respiratory distress. So acute mountain sickness occurs when there is a rapid ascent to 6,600 feet or higher. And acute mountain sickness typically takes 6 to 24 hours after ascent before the patient becomes symptomatic. And as long as that patient continues to climb, the signs and symptoms are probably going to Worse. Signs and symptoms of acute mountain sickness, weakness, headaches, nausea, shortness of breath, lightheadedness, loss of appetite, fatigue, and sleep disturbances or difficulty sleeping. Severe weakness, decreased urine output, vomiting, shortness of breath to the point where it can lead to altered mental status as well. Main things that we're going to be on the lookout for is patients gets very short of breath upon exertion and um, like weakness, headache, lightheadedness, et cetera. Care for acute mountain sickness, what the patient really needs is they need to descend. They need to come to a lower altitude where there's more oxygen available for them. However, in the meantime, while we're working on getting that patient to a lower altitude, we can put them on supplemental O2. At high altitudes, at this high, uh, SpO2 set of 90% is considered normal. So we may never get it as high as we want it, but our goal should be around that 90% threshold. And again, that's what's causing the issues is there's not as much oxygen available for the patient to breathe. High altitude pulmonary edema, HAPE, affects the lungs and gas exchange, and it's what it sounds like. They get high altitude, that causes pulmonary edema. Changes in the pressure of the pulmonary vessels cause the fluids to be forced out of the capillaries and to collect in and around the alveoli. Can occur at above 8,000 feet, but usually occurs at 14,500 feet, so pretty dramatically higher. Signs and symptoms of hate, shortness of breath at rest, cyanosis, cough, fatigue, weakness, loss of appetite, tachypnea, tachycardia, it's pulmonary edema, so we're going to have the wet sounding lung sounds, crackles, rails, and headaches. 
our care is going to be mainly supportive and it's going to be the same for high altitude sickness as well. Patient needs to get down from that high altitude. So descent. Other than that, we can apply supplemental O2 to help relieve some of those signs and symptoms until they come down from that high altitude. High altitude cerebral edema, HACE, HACE, occurs from collection of excessive amounts of fluid into the brain. That is cerebral edema, is fluid in the brain or the skull. That increases the pressure inside the skull as well, increasing intracranial pressure. And this typically occurs of altitudes over 12,000 feet. Signs and symptoms of HACE, severe headache, in coordination, nausea and vomiting. And again, that vomiting can be characterized as projectile vomiting, altered mental status, seizures, and coma as well. Treatment, just like any other high altitude sickness, is gonna be, main thing is they needed to send to a lower altitude, other than that, supplemental O2 can help with some of the signs and symptoms. Uh, if the patient's not breathing adequately on their own, we may need to ventilate the patient with a BBM. So in summary, body's thermoregulation mechanisms normally keep the temp at 98.6. When heat loss exceeds heat production, patient becomes hypothermic, low core temp. When heat gain exceeds heat loss, Hyperthermia results. We have the two types of cold-related emergencies. We have generalized hypothermia, drop in core temperature, and then we just have localized cold injuries. Those localized cold injuries, remember, are then further broken down into freezing injuries and non-freezing injuries, freezing injuries being frostbite. Heat-related emergencies include heat cramps, heat exhaustion, and heat stroke. Heat cramps are being as being the least serious, heat stroke being a true life-threatening emergency. Hot and dry skin indicates heat stroke. Uh, elevated, significantly elevated core temperature is heat stroke. Heat exhaustion has normal or slightly elevated core temperature. Again, they lose the ability to sweat. That's automatically an indication of heat stroke. Lightning strikes may cause serious injuries to the nervous cardiovascular system, as well as causing burns and blunt force trauma. Most altitude sickness occurs at least at uh, 8,000 feet, typically higher than that. Again, for all types of altitude sickness, the most important type of treatment is to get the patient to a lower altitude. Mm -hmm.